uh, it's kind of been an enjoyable trip down memory lane in part this weekend as I've been here with my wife and my family. Uh, I was thinking back, it's about 15 and a half years ago, I stood somewhere right in here, and I wept like a baby as the doors opened and Rebecca Graves, in a radiant moment of beauty, stepped out and made the long journey down that aisle to take my hand and become my wife. And it's impossible to be back up here and not be flooded with just the joy of that moment and the enjoyment of life that we've shared together. Raising our three young boys, being in ministry at times, and having the opportunity to travel around the country and do things like this. And at the same time, I recognize the moment of sorrow that we all share and in the passing of such a dear and beautiful Christian woman, Alex and Robert, and your mother. And it's an honor. Uh, Anytime I have the chance to speak, it's an honor. There's something special about being entrusted with the pulpit and the opportunity to open God's word together. And talking about human sexuality, in no way, shape, or form did I ever envision this was going to be the life calling that our Lord gave to me. I went to be a psychologist. I was a campus minister. I thought, I'll go do research. I'll go be a faculty member. Like, I didn't realize God was going to call me to be the Nazarene sex guy. (laughs) I didn't even know there was going to be a Nazarene sex guy. But, like, apparently he had big plans in store. Uh, So here I am, right? Like, I've done a lot of things in the church, and it's been just a fascinating journey that only he could have architected, right? From serving in the last quadrennial uh, on the Covenant for Christian Conduct Committee uh, for the General Church, the Nazarene, uh, to traveling and speaking and writing and presenting at uh, missions conferences and in churches. So it really is a joy and an honor to be here with you today. Uh, The problem, though, about being the Nazarene sex guy is sometimes I say things, even when I'm preaching, that sound one way, but I really mean them like a completely different way. So in the event that there's anything today that shows up and you're questioning, like, he's the Nazarene sex guy. Was that like an offhanded joke or is he honoring the pulpit? Like, I promise you, like, I'm here to honor the pulpits. And if something comes out wrong, like, it's just purely by coincidence or accident. And I'll be mortified to hear from you. Like, did you, really, did you say that? Like, I'm so sorry if I said that. We've been in this... Uh, series on purity, from what I understand. Um, And I've been entrusted with opening uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, kind of the latter part of that. I know Alex preached uh, on the first part of that passage last week. Um, And it's an interesting chapter. It's an interesting uh, context, actually, for us to open up. Uh, So part of what I'm going to do today is is a little bit exegetical. We're going to really delve into the scripture uh, between now and 1230. We've got plenty of time. I know the chicken is cooking. Everybody's worried about that for the missions dinner. Uh, maybe not till 1230. We'll go till somewhere. Right. It's a lot of jokes. Sorry, I'm laughing at myself now. <laughs> Got to make it light. It's such a heavy topic, y'all. Uh, but such a fascinating passage that Paul writes to. And one that I think we're going to find as we unpack this together really emulates the socio-historical moment that we find ourselves in today in the Western world. And I'm going to do my best to unpack some of these parallels and the significance of that for us individually, and perhaps more importantly, the significance of that as an extension of our personal lives into the body of Christ. And how can we, not just we personally, which is a necessary component of collective purity, but how can we individually and collectively as the body of Christ begin to pursue purity 
in a different way or with a different significance or perhaps with a different frame of reference. Uh, the idea here today that I'm going to try and uh, lead us to at the conclusion of our time is this idea that in pursuing purity, right, this thing that we're called to over and over again, we see it different ways throughout Scripture. Be holy as I am holy, right, comes to mind. Old Testament, New Testament, uh, uh, an imperative statement, a statement of declaration, a statement that our Lord is faithful to bring to pass in our lives. That's why we have the Pentecost, right? The sending of the Holy Spirit to equip us to live lives. This holiness is in part about purity. Right? And in pursuing purity and in pursuing holiness, I think what we're going to find, what I hope to help you see today, is that from the way we've been designed, very specifically and intentionally in our bodies, all the way to the body of Christ, how we're crafted together, how we're structured socially, and how Paul so beautifully throughout his epistles lays out this idea of the body of Christ as a metaphor for the human body. There's such beautiful parallels and such beautiful truths for us to draw from. And my hope is that we can reframe our understanding of why talking about sexual purity and human sexuality in a redemptive way is so essential. And it's because our bodies physically and our body of Christ socially are each designed to proclaim the gospel in a very specific way. Now, I was uh, doing the Parent Connect talk earlier, and I was going on and on about technology and cell phones, uh, and I talked about how I use my phone for banking and email, uh, which now that I'm up here getting ready to read scripture from it, I noticed that I failed to mention that I also read scripture on my phone. So, uh, there's some good to technology. Stand with me, if you would, as I unpack, or sorry, as I read 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside his body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Pray with me quickly. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the work that you desire to do in us, Father, in our hearts and our imaginations. Father, and thank you for the work that you desire to do through us in building your kingdom. Father, we invite you to this space. We've sensed your spirit this morning. We know you are here. Father, I pray that we will be receptive to the ongoing work that you desire to facilitate in us. Father, I pray that you'll bring to mind for each of us a loved one, a child, a sibling, a coworker. Father, we 
understand and recognize the reality of sexual brokenness in our world. And Father, as we explore scripture today, I just pray that you'll begin to equip each and every one of us with a wisdom and a courage and insight to move as your spirit leads. Father, we entrust this time and space to you. We entrust these words to you. Father, knowing that you're faithful, may we be found faithful as you open doors of ministry for us as we go from this place. We pray this in your name, Father. Amen. Please be seated. I know Alex spent a little bit of time putting First Corinthians, or yeah, putting Corinthians in context here. Uh, and I just want to build on that a little bit or kind of harken back to it for those of you that uh, perhaps weren't able to listen to that sermon. Uh, Corinth is this really fascinating city in the ancient world. Uh, it kind of goes through cycles. At one point, it's this uh, just blossoming metropolis. And then, kind of like cities in the ancient world, was eradicated, right? Wiped from the face of the earth. So by the time Paul is writing in the middle of the first century AD, right, Corinth is being rebuilt. It's a relatively young city. Right? They probably drank a lot of coffee and wore top knots. Right? Had some hipsters? No. Right, it's a young city, right? Uh, by all accounts in the ancient world. Right? And part of what was interesting about Corinth was its geographical location. Right? Uh, it's really a melting pot, a really diverse mix of cultures. Right? There's obvious Greek influence, but the Roman Empire has expanded, and there's quite a bit of Roman influence in the first century AD in Corinth as well. But there's also Jewish influence, right? As this uh, city grows, there's also a, a variety of uh, Oriental influences that show up in this first century melting pot moment in Corinth. Uh, it becomes a, a center for art, a, a center for philosophy, perhaps not to the same degree as Athens, but right, like this is a city that's up and coming in first century terms. It makes sense that Paul is led and called to Corinth as a place to plant a church and invest himself in the life of this church that's growing in the midst of a growing community. But there's some things about Corinth that also make it unique. Uh, from a spiritual perspective, this diversity of influences, Roman and Greek and Orient and Jewish, right, creates this really diverse spiritual climate in the city of Corinth. And part of what Paul is addressing, as we're going to see here uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, are some of the belief systems that emerge in the context of a, a very diverse spiritual layout. Right. Uh, in addition to, right, so it's not just uh, multiculturally diverse, it's not just spiritually diverse, uh, it's really sexually depraved, right? And I think uh, this whole chapter, right, that... Alex started unpacking last week and that I'll finish unpacking here today, really speaks to right, the, the, this uh, distorted mindset around the body and the nature of the body and the function of the human body. Right? And it's taken me some time. I've taken college classes on the life and letters of Paul. I've read scriptures. I've outlined and mapped right, Paul's epistles. Right? They, they fascinate me. Right? And the older I get and the longer I try and raise my 
three young boys, uh, right, the, more, the more scripture speaks life to me, like, oh, that's what he meant, right? Uh, pray for me, like three young boys is a, is a handful. Right? But there's these layers of scripture, right, and, and this brilliance that Paul shares with us through the Holy Spirit that I don't want to miss, because I think this chapter in particular, perhaps, right, we, we wrestle a lot with, like, is scripture still relevant, Right, like I go out and I speak in secular environments, I speak in uh, really weird places some days. Uh, right, and I hear this question from my secular counterparts, right? Like, why does faith matter? Right, like, scripture's irrelevant. Even Christians can't agree on scripture. Like, look at this, these groups of churches, and look at this group of churches, and like, they can't even agree on some pretty basic tenets. And it's interesting to see how Right, the secular world views us with regard to Scripture. But I think what Paul is doing here is giving us a pretty authoritative frame of reference for understanding what God is saying about human body and its use with regard to human sexuality. And I think it's a conversation that we sometimes shy away from in the church. Right? So part of this is not just about unpacking Scripture, but unpacking some of the mindsets that I think leave us feeling unequipped or unwilling or unaware of some of the answers that are pretty powerful answers to the question our world is asking, but there's this hesitance, there's this fear of the secular world that leaves us sometimes a little bit shy in offering the answers that scripture gives. All right, so part of uh, my time with you today is really intended toward like how can we unpack this and equip you with some of those answers again for our kids, for grandkids, nieces and nephews, uh, stepkids, foster kids, like wh- wh- whatever space of life you inhabit with regard to the formation of kids spiritually, physically, and emotionally, right? Like these words are for you. If you're in a marriage, if you're in dating, if you're single, if you're thinking about relationship or being married or being single, right? if you're human and you're alive and here and breathing, Right, like these words are for you and they're for me. Right? And they're powerful words that Paul has given us as we unpack them. See, just like first century Corinth, right, where this acro Corinth, this huge 1,800-foot kind of mountainous region outside of the city where the temple of Aphrodite was housed, where at different points throughout human history, uh, up to a thousand prostitutes worked in that temple, right? Literally and figuratively, like this shadow of sexuality and lust lingered over the city. And it permeates the imaginations of Corinthian Christians. And you know, I've done this for a long time. I've traveled around the country. I've been in different parts of the world wrestling with the idea of what is God's design for human sexuality and all the different questions that emerge from that big question. And I've got to be honest with you folks, like I can't think of a passage of scripture, perhaps Romans 1 would, would fit here too, but Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 like speak to where we as a world are at. And sometimes, right, the blessing of the faith, the blessing of life in the church is that we're not always aware of how dark it's getting outside of the walls of the church. 
whatever you assume, right? Like whatever you have your finger on the pulse of with the depravity of our world sexually, uh, triple it and you'll be a little bit closer. And I, I live and I traffic in these conversations on a daily basis as a therapist, as an educator, as a speaker, uh, as someone who runs workshops for folks around the country who have problematic sexual behavior, right? Like, I'd be lying to you, right? You know I'm a crier because I stood up here and cried when the door opened and Becca came out. Like, I sit in my office and weep about the state of our world because of the stories that I get to hear. Right? I'm not gonna share those stories with you. It'd be really easy to stand up here and share stories, right? Instead of delving into scripture. I think scripture's more important. But can I ask you to trust me that whatever you think is happening with regard to brokenness sexually in our world, like it's probably worse than you realize. And it's probably starting to impact our kids at younger and younger ages than any of us have ever experienced. What's interesting to me as I travel and speak and write, I I really tie things back to uh, the sexual revolution. So this idea of reverberations, right? Like things that have echoed through time and space that impact our present moment. Uh, I can't think of a more significant cultural influence in how our world is constructed today than the sexual revolution of 50 years ago. There's some, some really important foundational shifts that happen. Important not meaning good, right? But significant in that we move away from a relatively Bible-informed, heteronormative, Ten Commandments in schools, oriented culture, and we see this slow shift, right? And part of what shows up in this shift, kind of these beliefs of the sexual revolution, are uh, I can have things any way that I want, as much as I want, with whomever I want, wherever I want. And the last one is perhaps the most insidious with no consequences, with no consequences. Folks, I've helped a lot of people and I can tell you, right, there's, there's always consequences. In spite of our belief that like we can make choices that have no consequences, there's always consequences. That's part of what Paul's addressing. Let me just give you a brief sampling of where our world's at and why I think there's always consequences. Do you know that uh, worldwide there's about $97 billion made every year on pornography alone? About 13 billion of that originates in the U.S., which would be more than, you guessed it, the profits of the NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL, the four major sports. At one point in time, I'm not sure if that stat is still accurate, but a few years ago, Right, the gross revenue generated by pornography was more than all professional sports combined. Right. Uh, according to the National Survey of Family Growth, about 21% of men and 8% of women are going to have 15 or more sexual partners in their lifetime. Right. That was not true in the 1950s, right? We see the shift happening over time. Right. Center for Disease Control says that one in six boys and one in four girls are going to be sexually abused or assaulted by the time they turn 18. One in six. 
boys, one in four girls. Right? Is it real yet? American Association of Matrimonial Lawyers says that one in four marriages are going to end due to some type of cybersexual behavior, chatting, online affair, pornography addiction. Right? One in four. Focus on the family cite some research. It says one in three men and one in four women uh, are going to have at least one extramarital sexual act. Right, this is the world we live in. Right? Like the things we assume and understand and believe about Scripture right, and how God has designed our bodies and the function of sexuality and the covenantal Christian marriage, right? Like things are different. Uh, the American Sexual Health Association says that one in two sexually active people will have an STI, sexually transmitted infection, by the time they're 25. Different than the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Right? There's this escalation effect taking place that oftentimes we're unaware of. And if you're like me and you're raising young kids, you're probably terrified right now. Don't worry, I know the end of the story. I have hope. We're still raising our kids, but it can be overwhelming, right? UNICEF says that there's 21 million people actively being human trafficked on the planet today. 21 million. It's about a $32 billion a year industry. Different set of assumptions, right? Like, I don't come to like, overwhelm you or use graphic terms. I told Alex today, uh, this is probably going to be a superlative Sunday, like, meaning it's going to be the best, the worst, right? Like, that was the most forgettable sermon I've ever heard preached at Westchester Church in Nazarene. That was the most awkward sermon I've ever heard, right? It'll be the, the most something you've ever heard. Uh, but my goal is not to, like, come in and talk about, like, how bad things are, but rather say, what is God in the business of doing in the space that we find ourselves in? And are we tuned in? Right? Because I'm a huge believer if we're unaware, Right? We're disengaged, we're off the radar, right? Like, and God's trying to do something. Like, it could be that he breaks into time and space and activates our imagination or brings a circumstance into our lives that awakens in us this need to respond. But man, like, wouldn't provenient grace suggest that maybe some Nazarene sex guru person we just come and speak and awaken all of our imaginations that we can start to have collectively as a body of Christ these hard conversations. And that inside the church, instead of right, like just looking at how dark things are outside of the door, perhaps we can turn the lights on in a different way by the conversations that we have. Perhaps we can equip our kids or our grandkids or our nieces and nephews, our college students, our young marrieds, our young singles who are trying to navigate a sexualized society. Maybe we can make them a beacon of light as they struggle through the darkness that they didn't choose, right? Like the world is just darkening, right? Like, and, and we can go get lunch after this and we can talk about whether or not that's true, if you'd like, right? But I submit to you that it is. But we're called to in this space, and I think what Paul does brilliantly that we're about to unpack is gives us a frame of reference for understanding what is God in the business of doing? What is he actively doing here and now? And how do we become co-participants in that process, because that's where we're invited. And when we have this frame of reference that our bodies are declaring the gospel, that our bodies are saying something and suggesting something and created for something, 
Right? We're already most of the way there. It's a matter of flipping a switch. I hope today that a few switches get flipped. The world we live in is not much different. We've got high-tech gadgetry. I just read a passage of scripture right, that used to be like chiseled into a piece of stone and passed from one generation to another, like on a supercomputer that I carry around in my pocket. Right? Like times are changing. But I submit to you that some of the same fundamental brokenness that Paul addresses in his epistle to the Corinthians is no different. Which means the wisdom, the truth that we're invited to delve into right, speaks as profoundly today as it did in the first century. Let's take a few uh, minutes to look at these, I call them misguided mindsets. Right, they're just things that wove themselves into the imaginations of the Corinthians as the Corinthians lived in this kind of sexualized shadow of the temple of Aphrodite. And that lust just became uh, a permanent fixture in how relationships were navigated and how the imagination was formed and what little kids grew up understanding as what's normative. Right? Like, it's not like there's... Uh, just a randomness, like Paul said, like, well, I don't know, like, I'm going to go north, and then, like, I landed in Corinth. Like, I think the Holy Spirit is critical in guiding Paul's missionary journeys, right? Why? Because I think in his omniscience that our Lord knew and understood where the world was going to go, right? And he thought, like, wow, here's a context that is going to echo through time and space to help these believers navigate the distortions of something good, of something beautiful, of something I created, right? It's gonna get distorted in a fallen world, but I'm gonna give them these moments, these glimpses of my word to help orient them back to truth. And I think this passage of scripture is one of those that speaks to this moment. All scripture speaks truth, but this one speaks to this moment in a different way. All right, so what do we see in these misguided mindsets among the Corinthians? Well, the first one I see is... uh, quite evidently, entitlement. Right? I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do anything. But not everything's beneficial. Right? I have the right to make some uh, pretty terrible choices, quite frankly. Right? I have the right to speed. I have the right to right, like, go start a skyline in Kansas City where people know nothing about Chile and it would fail miserably even though it's amazing. Right? Sorry, Gold Star people. Is that too? Sorry. That's too, too sensitive. <laughs> Let there be no divisions among you in the church. Well, I can make some pretty terrible choices. All right? We all can. Right? But like the idea that Paul is calling our attention to is like just because we have the right to do lots of things Right, like the flip is that not everything's beneficial. Right, but there's this entitlement mentality I see at play. Right, uh, I think that entitlement is a driving factor in these consequences that we see in the sexual revolution. That I become Dale Keene, a social political professor, uh, talks about this. He talks about the I world. Right, like I read scripture on an iPhone, oh yeah, no, more division, right? If you think I'm a Galaxy person, you're crazy. All right, I read it on an iPhone, and my kids are playing on iPads, and, right? 
Like I, 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 how much of our world is built around having things our way at Skyline? I'm pretty entitled because I'm like, I need the coney with no mustard and no onions, right? Because that's gross. Right? Me, me, I, I, I. And how often our lives are inundated with messages around us having the ability to have things our own way. Right? Which I think, as we're going to unpack here in a bit, is contrary to the spirit of Scripture. All right, back to the sexual revolution. I can have what I want, anytime I want, however I want, with whomever I want, as much as I want, I, 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 and how self becomes the focal point of the sexual narrative that we're given in Western society. My needs, my gratification, my pleasure, right? Which Paul speaks to, right? Like, whoa, time out, right? Like, it's not about us. Like, if you're trying to inhabit the gospel and think it's about you, like, ooh, I've been there. I lived like that for a while. Like, it didn't work out too well. And Jesus was like, hey, guess what? Now you get to be the Nazarene sex guy. And I was like, great. Right. Transcending, I knew that was going to happen. Transcending our own desires, our own needs. Right. Misguided mindsets. Entitlement is a misguided mindset, but it's a prevalent mindset prevalent mindset in our modern world. Uh, second thing I see here is a misguided mindset is what I call social justification, right? Uh, I've got the right to do anything, right? He repeats himself, right? If you, if, uh, you learned anything in like 11th grade literature class, it's that anytime things get repeated, they're important. Same thing holds true scripturally, right? Like things that get repeated are thematic. Things that are thematic are important, Right, like the, the author is drawing our attention back to something with repetition. Right? So he's really digging into this notion of personal rights. Right? I'm raising three boys. Uh, my lovely wife can attest that some days things get pretty chippy around our house. Right? Like there's raised voices. There's right, like hurt feelings. Uh, and that's just from what I do to her in conversation. Imagine what happens among our boys. Just kidding. This idea of social justification, I can't tell you how many times and how crazy it makes me when I hear my kids say, but so-and-so got to have a snack, so I want one too. But he got to stay up until 8.45, so I want, apparently I'm raising California surfer kids, I didn't realize that. <laughs> uh, like, dude, he got to stay up until 11. Right, Just, social justification, right? Like, where we look around and say, like, well, hey, wait a minute. Like, they have something that I feel like I deserve, so, like, I'm going to appeal to their experience of it so that I can have the same thing, right? And, like, all the biblical scholars in the room go right back to, we want a king, we want a king. And God's like, whoa, time out. Like, I've given you prophets. I've given you judges, right? Like, I've given you my word to help see you through navigating the social context that you're in, we want a king. We want a king. And God's like, whoa, it's going to come with some like, really unfortunate side effects. Don't say I didn't warn you. It's the Bowman paraphrase, by the way. Scripture doesn't actually say that. Right? Social justification and how quickly in Scripture in our own lives we see social justification, looking to what other people are doing and then validating our own missteps based on what other people are doing. Right? Paul's addressing it here in the church at Corinth. Why? Because 
as Alex unpacked last week, there's a lot of things that were going on sexually in the church at Corinth that were more reflection of the culture than they were of the truth of God's word, right? All based on this idea of like, well, this is what other people are doing, so we're gonna do it too, instead of like, whoa, other people might be doing this, but God's word is calling us to something different. Are we willing to live into the different in a world that asks for more and more conformity of our attitudes and values and beliefs sexually, are we gonna conform to that story? Or are we gonna be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we trust God to reveal himself to us through scripture in times of prayer, in times of service, in times of collective worship? There's a beauty to how we've been designed and created. Now third, misguided mindset that I see evidenced here uh, is this appeal to reductionism, right? Uh, basically, reductionism is this philosophical belief that uh, our, uh, the, the, did I just go out? That's back, that's back. That the lowest kind of biological variable has the most influence or the most explanatory power, decision-making. So what we see here is Right? Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Right? I mean, Paul's being pretty generous here. Like, he's not being as crass as he could be. Right? He chooses the stomach over other body parts, but he's specifically speaking to right? the reproductive system. Right? Just because you have something doesn't mean you have to use it in the way that everyone else is using it. Right? But it's this lowest common denominator. If I have a part because I'm a man, or if I have a part because I'm a woman, like, I must use these in the socially prescribed way. And that's not the case, right? Like scriptures replete with examples of a strong sexual ethic, right? As we look back throughout the Old Testament, as we look at Christ's words, right? Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed sin with her in his heart, right? Like we get hung up on the idea of law, right? Like especially the world, like, oh, Christians are so legalistic. I'll be honest with you all. Like, I think grace invites us to go further than the law does. Let me say that again. I think grace invites us to go further than the law. It's not just don't commit adultery, but anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ooh, that's a higher standard. Well, Jesus came to cancel the law. If Jesus came to cancel the law, like, well, let me tell you what. Like, grace asks us to go, that might be canceled and put away. I'm not sure it is, but he asks us to go further than that in the establishment of our sexual ethic. Why? Because he knows the struggle of the world around us, and he invites us in purity into experience of evidence and grace that allows us to transcend the patterns and behaviors of the world around us. Because you know what? They're a snare. They trip us up, Right? You know, on Facebook, have you ever had like that random Russian friend request? Like, don't click on it, I promise you. I've seen enough stories from my clients who have clicked on it that like, just don't click on it, right? Like, we don't even have to go looking for sexual brokenness in our world. It's gonna find us, right? It's gonna find us. And having a strong sexual ethic, having this pursuit of purity to undergird how we live in the world is essential, perhaps now more than ever. Right? But this idea of reductionism, let's just blame the body. I have the part, so I need to use it because that's what it means to be a man or that's what it means to be a woman. We don't have to fall prey to that. 
right? But the Corinthian church in this very spiritually depraved, lust-oriented context, right, falls for it. And I think if we looked at the stats, juxtapose the secular world against the church, those stats look more similar than they do different. So what are some of these spiritual solutions that Paul offers to us? I love where Paul starts here. Uh, He starts, uh, and I'll do this in reverse order, right? Like he starts unpacking the idea of reductionism pretty brilliantly. He goes right back to God's authority over all creation, right? It's brilliant. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2, right? Which is kind of this narrative of what? Creation of the human person and Christian anthropology and how we're created to be in connection Right? It's not good for a man to be alone, right? Like we use that in the context of like, so I'll make a helper suitable for him, right? And we preach that at beautiful wedding ceremonies. But can I encourage you today that there's a semicolon there? Like that there's two independent theological thoughts that are related but independent. It's not good for a man to be alone. We're not created in our social neurophysiology to like live on an island. We're dependent on interaction and connection and sharing emotion Right. And did you see how impactful it was for Alex to stand here and talk about the significance of y'all's ministry to him and his family, and, and probably not just in the last week, right? Maybe more acutely in the last week, but you guys have cared well for a long time, right? Why? Because we're created for connection. Semicolon, therefore, I will give you a suitable helper, right? That the marriage context becomes a deepening of this thing that we're all created for, and we're cr- created to share that collectively in the body, but in a special way in the context of marriage. And it's not just a a sexual, right, like euphemism, right? Two become one flesh, right? Like, so much more than that. But that's where Paul goes, right? He takes us back to Genesis chapter two. You know what? Sometimes in trying to navigate a really sexualized culture, we need to go back to Genesis chapter two. Because you know what God's doing there? He's creating things as good, He's creating humanity and sexuality and relationality as good. And then along the way, it gets distorted. But if we believe in a God who's redemptive, we believe that he's redeeming things back to his original design, and that design is good. And it's no different with human sexuality. He's still the author of creation, right? Let's live into, right? Like sometimes our theological systems, we get bogged down in Genesis chapter three, right? And then they're expelled from the garden and, right, he had to toil and she was gonna have pain in childbearing. And, right, like, but I think our God is in the business. Like, that's the consequence, right? We just talked about the reality of consequences. Those are the consequences, but the consequence of redemption is God restoring something to its original design. Our marriages, our minds, our relationships, God's authority over creation is how he begins to combat these mindsets, of, or this mindset of reductionism. Kind of alluded to this, this notion of uh, social spirituality. I always get excited and get ahead of myself. It's terrible. Right, social spirituality. Like we're talking about the body, uh, what Paul says here in verse 17. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Right, that there's something inherently connective about that. 
And that part of navigating purity is best done socially. I work with a lot of folks who have uh, struggled with problematic sexual behaviors, various types of addictions, oftentimes for years. And you know where their addiction thrives? In the secrecy of solitude. If I'm not known, I am going to stay stuck. Right? If I hide myself and hide behind a facade, like I can allow my addictive behavior to flourish. And we're not created for isolation and secrecy. Right? We're created for this social spirituality. Uh, John Wesley said it this way. There's no holiness without social holiness. Right? There's no holiness without social holiness. Uh, our personal holiness is reinforced and simultaneously lived out in the context of the body of believers. Right? Our pursuit of purity is dependent on being known by one another and knowing one another. And I think some of the resources that the pastoral staff are introducing, right, the marriage workshop, the group experience, right? there's some things that your staff is being intentional in doing that are all about knowing and being known by one another. Why? Because we're created for a social spirituality, right? Like our personal devotions matter, but then we don't just stay stuck in that silo. We're called to come, right? This pursuit of purity right, is best done socially. I would add to what Wesley said, right? It's not just that there's no holiness without social holiness. I would say in a sexualized culture, there's no social holiness without sexual holiness, right? That we're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. We can look throughout scripture and find places where God is intervening giving words to say like, hey, do not do as they did in Egypt, right? Like don't follow their practices, right? Because they're really depraved. We can look at some of the Mesopotamian religions and see, right, like, wow, they're literally putting little babies into a fire. Like that's really depraved, Right? And God is saying, like, be set apart. My word calls you to something different. What's fascinating here, too, is there's a bit of God revealing through Paul in these words his intent for sexuality. Right? What he says here. consequences are different, right? The, the consequences of sin is different. Like when you sin sexually, you sin against your own body. Like one of my favorite fields is interpersonal neurobiology, right? The study of uh, the human mind and how it interacts in relationships, but also how it's impacted by addiction. And I would say that uh, Paul's pretty brilliantly alluding to the reality that there's a neurophysiological consequence to sexual sin. What does that even mean, Todd? That's a fair question. Right. Uh, if we look at human brain functioning, human development, right, uh, the last part of our human neurophysiology to develop is called our orbital frontal cortex. Right? It's right like, above and behind our eyes. Right? Uh, it's the seat of spirituality, the seat of empathy, the seat of insight, the seat of self-awareness, body regulation, emotion regulation. All right, that would be our 21st century clinical terms. Can I put those into a biblical context? 
It's the seat of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and, what's that last one? Self-control. Self-control. And that's uh, study after study after study, right? Paul doesn't have access to fMRIs. He doesn't have access to CT technology. He doesn't have pictures of the brain to test and validate these things empirically. He's got the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Like all the pictures that we've taken of the human brain, specifically of people struggling with what we would call sexual sin, right, shows a deficiency in functioning in this area. Why? Because the consequences of sexual sin work their way into our physical experience differently. Right? It, it's amazing. I don't have time. Like I could be here all day unpacking some of the significance of this. Right? For the sake of time, we won't. Amazing, though, the insight that Paul has into the human body. But here's what I, where I want to end. Right? The idea that our bodies proclaim the gospel. And there's a couple shifts I think we have to make. Uh, I mean, if I could boil our time together down to this, I would say simply, the healthiest sexual mentality we can adopt is one of selfless giving in the context of the covenant of Christian marriage, right? That when we reciprocally and mutually give selflessly to one another, emotionally, physically, right, with the dishes, with the laundry, and even in the bedroom, right, like, there's this pursuit of purity that happens in the mutuality, that self-giving. Why? Because it looks an awful lot like what Paul concludes with. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. You're not your own. We're not our own. Right? We're not our own. And again, like that's not just a reality of our vertical relationship with our Lord, but our relationships with one another socially, but even in the context of marriage. Right? And this invitation for us to live out a different story than what the world is living out, right? Like getting rid of birthright mentality. Right? Well, I'm a man and I just got married, so like it's my birthright. Except in the context of this mutuality of self-giving that honors the other above ourselves. Right? We gotta get rid of birthright mentality. Right? This damaging, wounding mentality. So these shifts, right? My invitation to you and, and, and there's probably, I've probably opened more questions for you than I'm going to answer in the next two minutes. Right? Why? Because it's a huge topic, right? And like this is a starting point. Like the vision wasn't for the pastoral staff to have me come in and do this like one-time conversation and never talk about this again. Right? Like I think the vision for this is for Alex to open the door, for me to come talk about the, all the awkward parts, and then the staff to like get to do the rest of the work. I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's about a progression, it's about a culture shift, right? And if we're gonna make this culture shift internally and socially for the world to see, right? I think we've gotta do a couple things. One is we've gotta get away from the shame-based understanding of human sexuality, and we've gotta get back to the goodness that God created sexuality with and for. It was created as good, like it can be good. It should be good. And if it's good, we honor it. If it's good, we protect it. If it's good, we, we value it and maintain its purity, right? We gotta shift this conversation from shame-based to reclaim the goodness that God's built into human sexuality. Right. Uh, we've also gotta shift away from silence and secrecy, 
Right? Again, sin flourishes in secrecy. Right? Paul exhorts us, bring everything to the light. Right? It's about being known, if I can reiterate that. Being known in the context of a men's group, in the context of another couple uh, who's married, right? who might go through a marriage class together with you. You might be in a small group together. Right? Like letting one another in to some of those painful places. Right? Being known more significantly and knowing one another more significantly. We've got to tear this veil that shrouds the concept of human sexuality in the church. It can't be our dirty little secret anymore. We need to be as comfortable conversing about it as we are about any other content in the church, which is a tall order, right? But it's an invitation to facilitate this cultural shift. I don't mean like graphic conversation. I mean talking honestly and openly about the reality of what's happening and the sexualization that happens as we try and live in the world and not of the world. And here's our, our perhaps last and most difficult shift. Right, if we want to be relevant in engaging a lost and broken and hurting world, right, then I think the church has to reclaim its space as a center for healing, as a center for hope. Right? I, I'm encouraged by some of the resources that I see y'all offer. Celebrate Recovery, I wish every Nazarene church would have a Celebrate Recovery ministry because there's something magical about it. Like, I think what's magical about it is it's a place of rigorous honesty and transparency and being known in a way that our Lord honors and begins a process of healing. Right? But like, we can just say like, oh, that Celebrate Recovery meets on Thursday nights at 8.30 and right, like, if we don't need it, we're not, we don't need it. Like, we all need something similar where we can be vulnerable and transparent and open and I think that's part of this shifting culture that the staff is facilitating and I implore you to support them in the shift, right? Because what you're doing here, I promise you, I'm, I'm around the country all the time. Right? Like I don't get asked to do this very often. Oh, come speak on a Saturday, right? Like where nine people will show up. Like I've had mega churches bring me in and 12 people show up, right? Like there was no Sunday morning, hey, collectively, let's broach this together. It was like, eh, we're gonna have somebody come, but it's gonna be shrouded in secrecy and silence. Right? And we're called for more than that. Man, I've used a lot of words. If you have ADHD, you're probably right on point with me. If you don't, you're probably like, I don't know where he's at. It's a lot of content. I'm sorry for overwhelming you. I'm sorry for the rabbit trails, right? Like I get excited and there's so many features and facets to this we have to explore. Uh, And I'm not a pastor, so I'm terrible at like landing the plane. But I was in here praying last night and kind of had a specific vision, uh, which is how we're going to end today. Um, I know the music is going to kick on here in just a second. But I've thought about kind of where, where is God calling me, right? Like, space has he put me into? And what do I do? Like, I know what I do professionally. Like, but how do I take what I do and multiply it? All right, because I can't help every patient. I can't be in every church. I can't consult with every family that has something of a sexual nature happen, right? Early exposure to something on the internet or being told stuff at school or hearing stuff in the locker room or hearing music on the radio. Like, I, I can't be in every space, right? I try to be, you can ask my wife. Right? Like, he tries to be everywhere. Right? I can't be. But what I can do is invite you into an experience of kind of what I do. Right? You don't have to be an expert in this. Right? I wasn't an expert 
Like I was just a random guy that was faithful to a call that I was confused by when Jesus said, I want you to do this. And I thought like, really? Like there's gotta be somebody better. You might feel that way, right? As a parent, you might feel unequipped. As a grandparent, you might feel like you've lost touch. As a step parent, you might feel like you don't have any significant influence, right? Would you trust our Lord to use you? You know, as if I boil what I do down professionally, I would say that I've been called to be an intercessor. I've been called to be one who stands in the gap on behalf of others, be it the broken marriage that's in my office for counseling, for the parents around the country who read the book I wrote a few years ago and right, call with all these questions. Right, like, I don't see myself as like the Nazarene sex guru. I see myself as just a guy that's been invited to stand in the gap and help the church recognize what our Lord is calling it to be and what's being called to do. So the best thing I can do is to invite you to co-participate with me in the process of being an intercessor. I asked you earlier to think about someone in your life. It could be your kids, it could be your grandkids, it could be your students if you're a teacher, it could be your neighbors, someone in your community. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's you. Maybe one of these areas that we've talked about has hit home and resonated. I'm not a pastor. I don't know how to do an altar call. But you know how to do? I know how to do an intercessory call. And if there's someone that has come to mind for you that you'd be willing to come forward and pray for, like, I'd invite you to do it now. Because if there's a topic that we need to unify around in the body of Christ, right, it's about protecting, especially what we talked about this morning, what we're gonna talk about later this evening at six o'clock. How do we protect these young minds, these young hearts, these young lives from being dragged away and enticed by the content that permeates our world? Saw a picture of the teens on the screen earlier. Y'all, if you don't know what it's like to be 15 years old in our world today, consider yourself blessed. I can't think of a more impossible task than trying to live out sexual purity as a 15-year-old young man or young woman. They need your prayers. I grew up Nazarene. Like, I grew up with that fear of, like, if I go to the altar, someone's going to think it's a problem with me. Intercede where you're at. I don't really care. I'm going to pray here for us because the chicken's done. I just got the signal in the back. I'm going to pray for us. And my invitation to you is where you're at, down front here, wherever you're comfortable. All right, would you be willing to stand in the gap? Would you be willing to ask our Lord to equip you with the courage and the confidence to ask curious questions, to notice when things have changed, to perceive when something's off? Again, maybe it's too uncomfortable to do it in your marriage. Maybe it's too uncomfortable to do it with your coworker. Maybe it's too uncomfortable to do it with your buddies from small group. I don't know. Right? But I'm raising three young boys. And our kids need all the help they can get, y'all. If you have no one else to pray for, pray for me. Pray for Alex and Megan as they're raising four young boys. Pray for any of the young family. I don't care who you intercede for. But I implore you desperately. All right, stand in the gap for these young ones who are trying to 
live out their faith in a context that's very different than what most of us experienced. Join with me in prayer. Father, you are good. You have created us as good. You have gifted us with your image. You've imprinted in our hearts and in our bodies. Father, socially and personally, maritally, sexually, our bodies have been created fearfully and wonderfully to proclaim your gospel, a gospel of love, a gospel of truth, a gospel of conviction, a gospel of transformation. Father, may we never cease to intercede on behalf of those in the church, outside of the church, in our sphere of influence, our kids, our grandkids, whoever it is in our lives, Lord. We're not created to do this alone. And sometimes the shame and the secrecy and the silence that have historically shown up in our culture and in the church inhibit us from finding the freedom that you've invited us to. Father, but it's in that freedom that we don't have to pick up the yoke of slavery any, anymore. And that in breaking that silence, Father, we don't condemn the next generation to the same sexual brokenness that we've had to overcome. Father, start that transformative work here at Westchester Church. With this body, may a light begin to radiate. May a hope begin to radiate. May a freedom begin to radiate that sets captives free, that releases the oppressed. Father, that heals those who are carrying wounds of betrayal or wounds of trauma or wounds of early sexualization that they've never had a chance to speak. Father, use this staff and the resources they've put together to facilitate a process of redemption among your people so that you can use us to redeem the world that you've placed us in. Father, we love you. We entrust ourselves to you completely. Give us the courage by your spirit to be faithful in stepping into the healing that you desire for us because we know you are faithful. Lord, we love you. We give ourselves to you completely. And we pray this all today, Father, in your matchless name. Amen.